after I set up this position and I had this allocated to be my number one position, what happened next is energy prices fell through the floor. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Brian Feraldi. Brian, are you ready to join the mission? I am, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you. And I really have a lot of respect for the work that you have done over the years. We were talking before we turned on the recording about you know the amazing number of articles, but having watched your videos, having read the stuff, some of the stuff that you've done, it's quality. And that's part of the reason why I'm really happy to bring you to my audience. And let me introduce you to the audience. Brian is a financial educator, YouTuber, and author. His career mission statement is to demystify finance. And ladies and gentlemen, he is accomplishing that mission. He loves to help other people do better with their money, especially their investments. He has written more than 3,000 articles on stocks, investing, and personal finance, for The Motley Fool. He's got a lot of other things going on, like books that he's written and his email list that he does and his emails that he does in his Twitter. You can follow him in many places. But Brian, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Sure. Well, thank you. I think you did a great job summarizing it there. But I'll say that I I was someone that uh, grew up in a household that understood personal finances, right? The basics of spend less than you make, save for a rainy day, et cetera. But it was essentially not financially illiterate when it came to investments, but just to the left of there. My dad, for example, was investing in penny stocks when he was young. And despite the fact that he was into finance himself, he was in he was an accountant. So that just shows that when I graduated from college, everything like that, I had a good selling foundation of how to do personal finances the right way, but I had no clue how to do investing the right way. And by the way, I say that as someone that graduated with a degree in business. So I I graduated in undergraduate with a degree in business. I had no clue how the stock market worked. I had no clue why it went up and down. I had no clue what like dividends were or share purchases were, what the S&P 500, all completely foreign to me. However, for whatever reason, I was just born to be an investor. Like some people just discover, like once they trip across investing, it just like catches them and like pulls them in. For whatever reason, that was me. When I first started getting interested in money and learning about compound interest and stuff, I was just hook, line, and sinker in. I experimented with a couple different asset classes. I ultimately decided that stocks were the asset class for me. I wasn't interested in dealing with renters or buying and flipping houses, none of that stuff. But I was like, stocks, I understand. But my education level was rock bottom at at the very beginning. And I started buying and selling stocks in 2004. I say buying and selling stocks because I wasn't investing. I was literally just buying and selling stocks. And I just, I draw a a distinct difference between the two. However, I was losing money on little bits of money. It felt awful, but man, that I learned a lot of valuable lessons in those early days. 
slowly over time, I discovered that the strategy that works best for me is find high quality, long duration growth companies, put my capital into those businesses, and then hold them for long periods of time. And my, my passion in life is helping other people to figure out what essentially I've learned, but doing it years faster than I did. And what type of, what would be your ideal person that comes to you and really gains from what you're doing? Well, ideally, they would be fresh out of college, someone that's just entering the workforce, because that is the time when compounding, you have the years ahead of you to really put compounding on your side. I would say that most people I interact with tend to be in their 30s, 40s, or 50s. So discovering investing or getting interested in investing a little bit later in life than an ideal right out of, of college. But the wonderful thing about investing is you can do it at any age, right? You can learn about it truly at, at any age. It's one of those activities that you can do for the rest of your life. But ideally, I would capture a 21-year-old fresh out of college about to sign up for their 401k for the first time and really teach them everything I know. So let's take a person, let's say, you know, out of university at that roughly at the age that you're talking about. And, you know, there's some people that say, I'm never going to get involved in the stock market. I'm not interested. You know, I don't like numbers, whatever. Okay. They're on one spectrum. It doesn't mean they don't need the stock market. They still need it. But, and then there's another one on the other side of the spectrum. That's just like crazy about it. But then you've got this audience in the middle. That's kind of, you know, neutral. They'll, they'll kind of, as they learn, they'll do. And if we look at that group, I would say that group has kind of two main options. Number one, let's just say they could buy a globally diversified ETF or fund. Vanguard VT fund as an example, and not do anything except just contribute to that for the next 20 or 30 years. Or they could follow someone like you, learn about picking stocks, learn about constructing a portfolio of individual stocks and you know being involved in that. Now, of course, it's going to take more time. But again, this is not the extremes where someone says, I'm not going to spend any time. They're willing to spend some time. What's the pros and cons from your perspective of doing you know, the stock selection and building and managing that portfolio versus the, the fund. Yeah. So let's go through those three buckets that you talked about. So if you're someone that has zero interest in investing at all, I would approach that group by first first showing them how compound interest works, right? The reason that they're not interested in investing or not interested in their money is because they probably have a limiting belief that they'll, they'll never become wealthy, they'll never build wealth. Like that is for a different group of people. That would be the education I start there. For the people in the middle, that are somewhat interested if they if they just want to index and and call it a day to them i say excellent that's what you need to do dollar cost averaging and very simple long term investing is the right strategy for i would wager 98% of the population however if that is your strategy which is a very very is the strat it should be the default strategy for everybody you still need to know what the stock market is and how the stock market works. So many people are following that strategy or they're putting money into a 401k or an investment vehicle. And you're just like, okay, if, if you just go up to them and say, why has the stock market gone up? Why has the stock market gone up 10% per year, essentially on average, you know, roughly of the US stock market since you were born? You would get blank stares. People have no clue about the how the stock market works. I'm not, I'm not talking about you need to know about the process of going public or how many companies are in there. Just the very basics. What is the stock market? What are you actually buying? And why does it consistently create value? 
So that would be the education that I would focus on for that category. The mm. final, the hardcore people, the people that are in that, say, 1% that are just like, like me, just interested in this stuff. The thing that I would say to convince them to do that is I would say you should only do that if this interests you. You should only do that if you will gladly, if you find this so fascinating and you find learning about investing to be so intellectually stimulating that you will gladly give up a portion of your free time to enhance your knowledge. If that trade-off does not appeal to you at all, just index and call it a day. But I do think about 1% of the population is interested in investing. They're interested in learning about companies. They're interested in seeing about how they work and building their own portfolio. But even that 1% of the population, you're talking about what, 80 million people around the world that could be interested in that. So if that's you, I would encourage you to find your own unique style that works for you and really just study and continuously learn. So for the listeners out there, you know, first of all, you've written the book, Why? Does the stock market go up? Everything you should have been taught about investing in school, but weren't, which you brought out, I think, in 2022, which I think gives a great background there. And now let's talk about the people who are like, yeah, I'm interested in stock picking. They're listening to this. They're they're viewing this. They feel like that's something I want to learn more about. And where's the best place for them to go to get more of what you've got to offer? Mm-hmm. So if you've taken that leap from, yes, I've, I've learned about the stock market and I'm interested in actually constructing and picking my own stock, people are spoiled today with the plethora of options that they have. I mean, when I first started investing, really the only way that you could learn about how to invest was books, right? And you'd go through that, you would scour through the, the classic investing books, right? One up on anything by Peter Lynch, one up on Wall Street and Beat the Street, anything by or about Warren Buffett, anything by and about Charlie Munger, anything by and about Benjamin Graham. The Motley Fool was actually coming out with some books at the time, like the Motley Fool Investment Guide. Heck, even Jim Cramer has some pretty good educational books out there that teach you some of the fundamentals of investing. So for me, the first the first step, if you're interested, is always the same. Educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself and go through at least develop some kind of process for identifying businesses and investing in them. And then just get some skin in the game. You learn a hundred times faster when you actually have money on the line than when you don't. But start small. There's no need to rush in. Always make sure that you educate yourself before you increase the size of your bets. Because the worst thing that you can do is to make huge outsized net worth moving bets that you don't understand. Great advice. In fact, one of the things I was just thinking about on my bookshelf here is... uh... This was when in 1993, when I started to be a financial analyst in Thailand, where we didn't have libraries like with, you know, all these books and we didn't have bookstores with all that stuff. I managed somehow to get this book called Security Analysis, Security Analysis. Graham and Dodd's book. And it's it's actually quite, you can see it's kind of getting faded on the inside. They got all the ratios and that that was all, all that we had. And I just, you know, went through that to try to learn. And now, as you say, we're spoiled for choice. You know, the ability to invest is so easy. So for the listeners out there, just I'm going to put in the show notes, your site, brianferaldi.com. And that's where you can learn more about it. I just would ask, like to ask one last thing before we get into the, the big question. I've seen, you know, some of your different frameworks and that's what I like about what the way you think is you, you, you use frameworks, things like anti-fragile and all that stuff. Maybe you could just tell the audience about one 
of your, you know, the ways that you think about things so that they could get a picture of the type of thing that they would, they would learn more about if they signed up or joined? So by and large, one of the mistakes or one of the things that I didn't understand about businesses in general was how the business growth cycle works. And essentially the stages that a business goes through as it hopefully becomes, let's say the ultimate goal is becoming a dominant S&P 500 constituent or something like that. When you just go pull up um, a stock tickers, all stocks look the same. There's just a ticker and then there's a price, right? And that is the information that is shoved in people's faces all the time, right? You get the stock ticker, you get the dollar price, and then you get the price movement in the last the last trading session. That's the, inf- that's the information that's in your face all the time. When you're doing that, all stocks essentially look like they're the same thing, right? It doesn't matter if it's a micro cap, no revenue business with lots of debt, no inside ownership, everything, or if it's Apple, which gushes cash out of its ears, right? All they are is two different tickers. But I think it's really helpful to develop, to learn about the business cycle so you can learn to separate where businesses are in their, in their growth cycle. For example, my investing style is to typically look for smaller, high growth businesses that are nearing that are nearing the uh, the break even phase of their growth cycle that i believe can reinvest in their operations for 5 10 plus years and really compound their value for a long period of time i'm looking for the proverbial 10 baggers out there and i'm happy to scour and own companies for multiple years and give them a lot of leeway to execute against whatever opportunity they have so i'm on the riskier the semi riskier side of that growth curve other investors want dividend payers right they want they want companies that are buying back stock. That is on the other side of the growth curve. That's a company that's already achieved. It's captured its market opportunity. And now it's really in harvest harvest mode, extracting as much profit as it can from its customers and returning those to shareholders. So that's the kind of thing that we teach people to do. It's like identify where it is on the growth curve, identify what type of investor you are, figuring out some basic frameworks for judging business quality and how to buy them and hold them for long periods of time. And just for the listeners out there to kind of differentiate that, you know, it's it sounds like there's a lot of people out there that talk about, I buy good quality companies at good prices and stuff. Well, a lot of times what happens is you don't get as much of a potential of a big return because they're already producing a return on invested capital that's above their cost of capital. And that's in the price. And it sounds like, also, it sounds like you're not talking about turnarounds. You know, there's some people that love bombed out stocks and say, yeah, this is going to turn around. But what you're talking about is the companies that are at that point where they're reaching the economies of scale or the other factors that are going to lead them to get a return on invested capital that's going to rise above their cost of capital, maybe steadily for 5, 10, 20 years. And we know that when a company is expanding its revenue growth and expanding its margin, it's driving massive EPS growth that has the potential for 10 times. Is that that describing it right? Yeah, I think that you're you're dead on. And I will say that I'm not interested in business turnarounds, but I don't mind investing in stock turnarounds. And I differentiate the two to say some businesses are executing. Their businesses are continually improving. But if we've seen over the last 18 months or, or so like that, some of these stocks whose business fundamentals are rapidly improving have seen massive, massive deterioration in their share price simply because their valuations were so stretched in 2020 and 21. And we've seen the unwinding of that. So I don't mind investing in stock turnarounds. It's not my primary focus, but I don't mind investing in those. But I avoid like the plague business turnarounds. Right. 
Fantastic. Well, what a great intro. And for the listeners out there, I'm going to have all the links to your resources and your sites in the show notes. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So the company that I'm going to highlight, I invested in in 2013. So I was about nine years into my investing journey. I definitely wasn't an expert at everything. However, I completely understand business fundamentals. I had a framework in mind for what kind of companies that I was going after. And at the time, Kinder Morgan was and is a oil pipeline company. What that means is that they don't go out and find the oil, but they do own and operate these pipelines that move oil and natural gas from the extraction point down to a processing plant, and they take a fee for moving it. What really attracted me to that business model was that they had these what are called take or pay contracts in place, meaning that if the price of oil went up or the price of oil went down, same thing for natural gas. In theory, Kinder Morgan was going to get paid either way because the um, that is the deal that it had with these its customers. It was just moving the energy and the fossil fuels. It wasn't selling them and selling them at a higher price and extracting them or anything like that. So in theory, this company had locked in nearly guaranteed recurring revenue. In addition, it was run by its founder, Rich Kidner, who owned tons of stock and continually bought it. And the company was in the capital return phase. And it had something like a 4% dividend yield at the time, plus a realistic growth plan in place for them to expand that dividend by about 10% per year as capital growth. So from the outside, I said, this is a company paying a dividend, a realistic growth story in place. It's got a founder-led management team. Its revenue seems all but guaranteed. This looks to me like a very low-risk company that I could earn a high dividend yield from and get some growth too. So it was like, Sign wow. me up. Exactly. Check so many boxes for me. So the more I learned about this company and the more I studied it, the more bullish I became on the potential. So over time, I was adding, adding, adding to the stock because I thought it was attractive. It became my number one allocation position by just the amount of cash that I put into it. And then to make things even more, I was even so, so bullish on this company. At the time, I was learning about options and how options worked. And I set up what's called a synthetic long on Kinder Morgan. A synthetic long is when you sell a long-dated put which brings in cash today, and you use that cash to buy a long-dated call option. Essentially, what you're doing is with pure leverage, benefiting from the upside. So if that stock goes up, you essentially get paid get paid for that stock to go up ahead of time. So the returns to the investor are enormous on a percentage basis. And you must the have downside, felt really smart to create a synthetic. Yes, of course, of course, right? And in addition to that, but the downside to a synthetic long is, well, if the stock price falls, you're on the hook, right? You're on the hook for, for pure, pure leverage because you don't own the shares. But again, my confidence level in this thing was so sky high because it just looked so bulletproof. Well, after I set up this bullet position and I had this allocated to be my number one position, what happened next is energy prices fell through the floor fell through the floor. I mean, oil tanked, natural gas prices just absolutely tanked by 50% or more. They were simply an oversupply 
on the market. And if you know anything about energy prices, you know the history is up and down, right? Up and down, up and down, up and down. That's just, it's a boom or bust cycle. Now, what confused me at the time was during this downturn, which are entirely understandable, Hinder Morgan stock was going down. And I mean down a lot. And I was scratching my head like, I don't understand. The market is so wrong here. This company has take or pay contracts in place. It gets paid no matter what the price of energy is. Why is this stock going down? So even though my position was in the red, I added to it because I was like, well, now the dividend yield is 5 or 6%. And everything the company is saying is still in place. Well, since you know the title of this podcast, you could probably guess what happens next. Uh, peak to trough, Kinder Morgan's stock ended up falling 70%. 70% on my number one position, plus some options in on top of that. So the thing that I didn't understand, I understood a lot about Kinder Morgan's business, but the lesson, the thing that I got wrong was take or pay contracts only matter if the person on the other side of the transaction can afford to meet their end of the agreement, right? So while the company did have, quote unquote, guaranteed locked in revenue in place, those companies, those companies were dependent on the price of oil and the price of natural gas. And they were hurting. They were really hurting. The the big drawdown in the energy prices was really putting the pinch on their financial statements. So Kinder Morgan was being forced, while, while its contract said, ABC, you owe me this amount of money, its customers literally couldn't pay it. And they were demanding mercy from Kinder Morgan to help them meet their obligations. So in some cases, they stretched out the payment so that they still owed them the money, but it wouldn't be owed for years. Other times, other cases... Those contracts were renegotiated completely. So the market understood that. The market understood that as energy prices go down, Kinder Morgan might be insulated, but not through the secondary knock-on effect. I didn't understand that. And that caused me to, once I eventually learned that, I capitulated, I bought out my options contract, and I took, so far, the largest loss I've ever taken. And so how would you describe the lessons that you learned from that? Well, there's a bunch of lessons that I learned from that. The first thing I learned is something I still believe today, which is just don't use options. Like options are so tempting, so tempting. And one really bad thing today is that if you sign up to some modern day brokerages, they make it incredibly easy for anybody to start playing with and buying and selling options. Even people that I think have no idea what they were doing. Now, I, back in 2013, moved brokerages so that I could get access to trading, to buying and selling options. I I moved access so that I could do that. So I had to take extra steps to do that. I had to like fill out paperwork and all, all kinds of stuff. And I was a pretty experienced investor at that point. Moreover, I I kept my options exposure to like five percent of mm. my portfolio. So I did not go you know, balls to the wall crazy on them. It still hurt when obviously they work against you, but I didn't do anything. Nowadays, you can. You can like really get into a lot of trouble very quickly if you buy and sell options. But that would be lesson one for me, which is just you don't need you don't need leverage, right? Mm. Warren Buffett says it best. He says, if you're smart, you don't need leverage. If you're not smart, you shouldn't use leverage. <laughs> All right. So that would be lesson number one. Lesson number two was about position sizing. That making, forcing a company to become my number one position through my continually putting capital into it is something that I don't do 
now. Currently, my, my current strategy is to put in a maximum maximum of 3% of my capital into any given investment in, in any given time. After that, for a company to become a larger share of my portfolio, the company has to do the heavy lifting, right? I don't mind if I put 3% in and it double, like the stock doubles and my, and my exposure goes up that way. But I have learned that I'm not going to force a company to become my largest position by continually pumping capital into it. I would much rather put a little bit of capital and watch a company grow and flourish than be kind of forced it in there. And then the final lesson that I learned is just about that important counterparty risk. And ever since then, I've essentially sworn off any cyclical industries, right? Commodities, I don't play in. The fossil fuel industry, I don't play in. Not because I don't think I couldn't understand it there. And there's also, there could be lots of good investments in there. The thing I don't like about that industry is by and large, that industry is largely dependent on a factor that is completely outside of management's control, right? If you're an oil, oil maker, you could be the best oil man in the world. If oil prices drop 70%, your business is hurting, right? Yeah. If you're a gold make, if you're a gold miner, you can have the best mine in the world. Gold prices drop 70%, your business is in trouble. So business mm -hmm. is hard enough. I don't also want to have to depend on luck of a market price for the investment to work out. Fantastic lessons. Maybe I'll just share a couple of things I take away. First is, you know, don't be seduced by the research you do on where a company fits in the supply chain like that. No research ultimately can perfectly protect you. You've got to understand the sentiment. As I was thinking, like the sentiment ultimately overran what your feeling was about those contracts, which reminded me of a little story where I, I left a company and I walked across the street and I took the material that I had at that company and I hired a guy that I worked with at that company, walked across the street and set up a competing business. And I was in violation theoretically of my non-compete clause and of my non-solicitation clause to not hire this employee of the company when I left. And I teach ethics in finance and I asked the students, so did I violate the code of ethics of CFA and all that? And they said, well, you must be, right? You know, you're violating your contract. And I said, well, I didn't because what did I do? I asked my boss, could I do it even though it says it in the contract? And he agreed that they didn't need this anymore and they didn't need that particular employee anymore. Therefore, he exempted me from that portion of the contract. And my point is, is that, Contracts are not written in stone. When mm -hmm. pressures come on a company or an industry, contracts can be renegotiated. And a lesson also for everybody out there is that also means your contracts that you're in. You know, if you find yourself really in a bad situation, then go talk to people that you signed the contract with. So that's my first thing I was thinking about. Like nothing is locked in. And yeah. so that's the first thing. The second thing is I saw I, when you wrote, I was typing while you were writing, I, I wrote down, don't use drugs. They are so easy. Oh, sorry. Don't use leverage. Sorry. I think it was leverage you said, right? <laughs> but I was thinking about, you know, what's happening around the world and particularly in the US is like drugs like Adderall and all like things like that. They, they accelerate some activity in your brain, but it comes at a cost and you <laughs> may not see that cost, but one day it's going to come. And so be careful about trying to leverage beyond what your capability is. And then the third thing is uh, the position sizing. I think it was interesting. What I do for my strategy is I do equal weighting. And every three months, 
I <laughs> rebalance back to equal weighting, which, you know, if you just compare to market cap weighting, you tend to outperform a market cap weighted type of index, but it just, it kind of makes things simple for me. I have a simple rule on that, but those are the things I would take away. Anything that you would add to that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that you're, you're spot on and leverage is, Leverage is just so tempting. It's just so tempting, right? It's like, why would I settle for a 10% return when I could use some leverage and get a 20% return or a 30% return? Oh, it's so tempting to want to do that on the way up. But here's the other thing I'll say is when I feel, when my research makes me unbelievably bullish about something, that probably means I'm blind to some risk, some obvious risk that I, I can't see. So yeah, to your point, it's very easy to fall in love with your own ideas, especially when you're viewing them through the bullish lens, which I, I think that's one of the fun parts about investing because as you know, like the math is so in your favor. If you fall in love with 10 ideas and one of them actually works out the way that you want, the gains from that can pay for all the nine, the losses on the other nine. But I still think it's a good practice to just have some rules for yourself about maximum amount of allocation that you want to put into an idea because no matter how confident you are, you can still be wrong. And the next question I'm going to ask you, most people can't answer because they always give me two or three reasons or two or three actions. So what I ask is based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what's one action that you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Write down a list for yourself of all of the possible business risks that you yourself want to avoid. For me, that's things like I hate high levels of dilution. I don't like high levels of customer concentration. I'm allergic to accounting problems. I don't like foreign currency movements, et cetera. So I wrote down for myself and on my checklist has this big list of risks that I want to avoid. One of them is, uh, is commodity price uh, risk. And whenever I take an investment, whenever I'm researching an investment, I run it through that checklist. And that can help me to avoid making the same mistake again. Because it's easy to talk about this now when it's me yeah. and you. But when you're researching a company for the first time, if you're like, it's hard to think of all the risks that you thought of previously. So just write things down. It makes things so much easier. Yeah. And there's a great book called The Checklist Manifesto, which talks about mm -hmm. the value of checklists. So the next question I usually ask is, what's a resource that you recommend? And I, first of all, want to recommend to everybody out there to go to your website. And I'll have that in the show notes. So there's so much resources that you're providing for free and, you know, that's valuable. But besides that, is there, what's a resource that you'd recommend? So I'm a big fan of, I like to read books. I also like to watch YouTube. So between those two things, you can get the information that you need to make good decisions. But to your point about resources, I do have available on my website, a free investing checklist. And it's literally the exact investing checklist that I use. It's both the positive attributes that I look for in a business, as well as those risks that I want. And it's in a Google sheet. So you can just make a copy of it and adapt it as you see fit. So yeah, if people are interested wow. in doing that, or at least starting with my framework moving forward, it's free. It's just at brianfraudley.com. Fantastic. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? So my, my personal goal, my business goal for the next 12 months is really to just keep my flywheel that we have going in the business spinning. Me and my business partners are growing pretty nicely on social media, growing our, our newsletter and we all enjoy teaching. So we have these live cohort-based courses that we offer on things like how to read financial statements, how to think about valuation, how to learn about advanced concepts like return on capital, weight average cost of capital, et cetera. So it's really, my goal is pretty simple, is just keep the flywheel that we have going and uh, continue to grow. 
And for those people that go to your website, they're going to see courses is one of the downloads or one of the one of the menu items. And you've got the course financial statements explained simply. <sighs> nice. Yes. All right. We Thanks. try and make it dead simple to learn how to read them. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join the free weekly newsletter called Become a Better Investor Newsletter to Reduce Risk in Your Life. As we conclude, Brian, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A.E. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for our wonderful audience? Sure. Given the audience here, my parting words would be learn to love the process of becoming a better investor. If you can actually find joy in the process of becoming a better investor, that's how you'll actually become one. Great advice. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside. <laughs>